Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Hear God's word for us. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on him, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, good morning. If I have not met you, my name is Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here, and now that God's word has been read over us, let's turn in prayer to hear from God that he might guide us in the illumination, the shedding of light as to what we are to see together from him in his word. Let's pray. God, there's no such thing as too much prayer Prayer can be done while we sit still. It can be done while we go about our work. Prayer is more of a posture and a practicing of your presence than it is closing our eyes or keeping our bodies still. But in this moment and in this space and time, we, we do say thank you that you have spoken through people to point us to a person. And so, God, I I pray today that for us, I mean, we we all got blinders, me too, uh, that are shielding me from seeing the fullness of the glory of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes wide, that we would behold Christ, the one, the anointed one, the Messiah of Israel, Jesus, Yeshua, the one who's come for us. May we see him. May he saturate our hearts, and through him may we see everything more clearly. We pray this now in the name of said Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, knowing you hear us, and all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Well, you may look at this particular picture here, and you may know what this is, kind of growing up, um, maybe as a kid, you saw these things. I don't know if we can get that up there. Okay, some of you are like, wait a second, is that the screen on your TV when you can't get a signal? Not quite. Um, This is officially called an autostereogram. Some of you are like, a what? 
I'd never heard of this as a kid. No, let me explain to you what it is, and you're going to maybe be more familiar. This is one of those pictures that you would hold up close to your face, and there's something astounding that happens to your eyes. And uh, the closer you have it, and then you slowly pull it away, the longer you focus it, focus on this picture, and you move it away from your face, a 3D image pops out of a 2D, 2D print. It's something pretty astounding that happens with your eyes, and it's, it's fascinating. Now, the longer you would focus on it, and I don't think it's going to work with us this morning if you look at it on the screen. Some of you are like, what is it? What's in the pop-out? It's a fool's errand. I don't think it's going to work. Some of you are like, no, I got it. Well, congratulations. Um, <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, the more you look at it and stare at it, a 3D image would pop out of a 2D print. It's something astounding. And the longer you focus on it, the clearer the image becomes. And this is true with nearly everything in our lives. The things that we focus on, the things that we give our attention to. If you really want to know a thing, if you want to really know a person, if you want to really know a craft, you have to give time to that thing, to that person, to that craft. You have to focus on it. You have to zero in. There's no rushing it as much as you may try if you want to really see what's there. And that, of course, is true as well when we come to Jesus in many ways, the Gospels are auto-stereograms. And so now you've got the word of the day, auto-stereogram. You're like, okay, you've got an amazing trivia word. So congratulations. You get something from church today. Auto-stereogram. The Gospels are auto-stereograms where they're inviting you to look. You can't just walk by. And John, one of Jesus' closest friends, he's been painting this glorious picture of who Jesus is and how he stands out from the rest. You see, Jesus... He can't just be a painting. You know, if you go to the airport and you're rushing your way to your connection flight, there might be a piece of art that's there in the terminal that you're going by. You might be aware, oh, there's a shade of blue and a shade of orange, but you can't describe it because you're going from one flight to the next. It's just, it's just extra environmental noise that you might be aware of on your way to something else. Well, with Jesus, he demands to be the very centerpiece of our lives, the focal point the key artwork that we sit and we gaze and we slowly immerse ourselves in. So what do we see when we see Jesus? Or better yet, what jumps out when you look at Jesus? When you're zeroing in on him, when you're focusing in on who he is. And some of you here may be quite frustrated because you've been reading the Bible for a minute and you're like, you know, sometimes I see Jesus healing someone. Sometimes I see him turning over tables. Sometimes he says the kingdom's at hand. Sometimes he says the kingdom's not of this world. And you're trying to make sense of who this Jesus is that is littered across these gospel accounts and wanting to know him. Others of you maybe thought you knew who the Christ was. And yet now you sit here, maybe something happened in your life or something you read in scripture. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm not so sure. I know who this is. And then there are others of you who just want to be reminded of the beauties of Jesus. And sometimes that's one of the reasons we come together is just to be reminded of how beautiful Christ is. Whatever the case is, the goal of our journey is not to just see what we want. It's but to see what is actually there. Same with the auto stereogram. When I was a kid, I actually hated those things um, because I was not a very patient kid. So I would sit there and you know, I'd be looking at the picture. I'm like, all right, it's taking way too long. However long it took, it just felt like it took way too long. And so then I'd be done. And so if I had a friend sitting next to me, like, yeah, I saw it. I'm done. 
They go, oh, really? What was it? You know, it was like a tiger. It was coming out or something. Like, dude, there was no tiger. Ah, dang it. You know, like, that wasn't it. All right, well, I just don't care enough. I'm, I'm moving on. You know, I'm seven. I want to go play with Legos. Like, I'm done. But here's the deal. You can't just make up what's popping out. Our goal is to actually see what's there. In the autostereogram, there is an image that's imprinted within those horizontal repeating patterns that will jump out. But you have to sit, and it takes time, and you have to look. And today, we're going to take some time, and we're going to see, once again, what jumps out when we look at Jesus. Not just what we want to see, but who he actually is. And today, we have an extraordinary guide to help us see what we often overlook. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 19. And here's the deal. We're coming out of the prologue, the introduction, the first 18 verses. John, the evangelist, was the author that brought together these eyewitness account components, pulling together the narrative, the story of who God is revealed in Jesus. That prologue sets up the structure for the whole of the book. And already we've been introduced to another John. And right here in verse 19, we read, this is the testimony of John. Now, it's not the same John who's writing, writing this account. It's not like John's talking in the third person, like John loves a bagel. John wants to go about the day today. You know, it's real awkward when people do that. I'm like, dude, what are you doing, right? John's not doing that. He's not talking about himself in the third person. He's talking about another John, John the baptizer. He was famous, or better yet, he was infamous in his day. Um, everybody knew about John the baptizer. He was kind of a thorn in the side of everybody who had power, <laughs> whether it be Jewish or Gentile. It didn't matter. He was just ready to go. I mean, if you were a political leader engaged in immorality, John's got something to say. We see it in scripture. He kind of goes after people in power. If you were a religious leader who just wanted to gain power and tried to manipulate the crowds, he'd call you a snake in front of everybody. He wasn't really the Midwestern polite kind of guy, you know? And, and here's the deal. Not only that, he was really different. I think different's a good word. I was trying to think of different words I could use for him, but different captures him. I mean, he wore the kind of clothes that you wouldn't find on sale in a thrift store rack. I mean, it was like he was just wearing just these old ratty clothes. He survived on a starvation diet. Like, think about this. He ate grasshoppers for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm -mm. Grasshoppers for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and maybe he'd dip them in some honey, right, to hide some of the flavor, or maybe add a little spices. Mmm, crunchy, delicious grasshoppers. And then on top of that, he lives out in the wilderness. I mean, this guy is not like, hey, if I'm going to set up a place where I'm going to be teaching people or calling them to come to know about God, I mean, he doesn't really pick the most comfortable chairs, the most climate-controlled area. He goes out in the middle of the wilderness. This is kind of like crazy uncle meets firebrand preacher. I mean, this is an astounding guy. But, but in all of that differentness isn't what drew the crowds to him. He was quite infamous because of the way he spoke. There was something about John the baptizer. He spoke with utter conviction and authority. It was like nobody could buy him. Nobody could manipulate him. It was always truth, no matter what it cost. If it cost him political chips, if it cost him religious chips, his biggest concern was God's word and studying the Hebrew scriptures and saying things that would offend everybody. <laughs> Some guy in his mid-30s so the older guys would look down at me like, this young firebrand doesn't know what he's talking about. 
He was an astounding character. And people wanted to hear him because his love for God's word and also his desire for change. His one thing that he was passionate about was preparing God's people for God's presence. He was preparing them for the Messiah. He saw the oppression of the Roman Empire. He saw the oppression that they engaged in one another. He saw the brokenness of Israel and he longed for what the prophets had been speaking of, of this one who would come and finally deliver his people. And and because he was so renowned for the way he spoke and the ministry that he carried out, I mean, he was, there was no middle ground for John. You were either completely immersed in the practice of repentance, which was symbolized in water, or you were bone dry in your sins. There's no middle ground for John. And so people would come to him and they would say, hey, John, everybody knows about you. I mean, you've got people flocking to you. Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah, which was another character people were, or a title people were using of the one that was to come and deliver them? And John was like, no, 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 man, I'm not the guy. (laughs) I'm just the guy before the guy, you know? My job is to prepare the way for the guy And that guy, I can't even tie his shoes. I mean, if you think that I might be the guy, the guy that you don't even know about, man, he is so much better in ways that we can't even begin to fathom that I can't even come close to him. Like, that's the guy I'm preparing everybody for. I want them, their hearts to be open and willing for when that guy shows up. That's my job. And there was something about John that he just never pointed to himself. He was always pointing to the Messiah. He was always pointing to God. That was what drew people in. Once again, nobody could buy him off. He said things that ticked everybody off. And he was always calling people, God's people, back to God's presence and longing for God's return. Not about his celebrity. I mean, if you tried to put together a marketing plan for John, there is no gimmick here. (laughs) And so, in the midst of this, we see that God spoke to John. Yeah, John had called, or God had called John out to the wilderness to call people to repentance. This is a, a defining marker of his identity. He knew the scriptures and what had been foretold. But something unique also had happened. God said, while you're going about this baptism work, while you're going about this calling of repentance, preparing people for me, there's going to be one that comes. And when that one comes and you baptize him, the spirit of God's going to come down and actually remain on him. That's going to be the sign that that's the one, that that's my son, the son of God, this glorious title, the heir of David who is to come and sit on his throne for all eternity to bring about justice and righteousness for God's people. Look for that. And in the midst of his longing, in the midst of waiting, I mean, hundreds upon hundreds of years, God's people have been aching. In many ways, this ache has been all the way back from the beginning when the first human couple, Adam and Eve, turned their back on God. These promises have been percolating throughout the years. And here, finally, coming off his wind-torn lips, John says, even to his own surprise, when he realizes that it's his cousin, Jesus, because of the experience of the baptism, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. You see, when John looks at Jesus, he sees a lamb popping off who Jesus is. Out of all the things he could have seen, a lamb. And listen, 
if we, it feels weird to us, it was also not necessarily the assumed title that people were looking for in the first century. People were looking for a political warrior. People were looking for a firebrand. People were looking for someone to throw off the shackles of oppression. Frankly, somebody who was a lot more like John. But a lamb? Nobody was really looking for a lamb. And frankly, if we're honest with ourselves, I don't know how many of us are looking for a lamb either. And yet, John makes it abundantly clear, if you don't see a lamb, you're not looking at Jesus. If you don't see a lamb, you're not looking at Jesus. You know, John the evangelist, the one who's recording this gospel account, he was there. Later on in John chapter 1, we find that he's one of the disciples that actually was there with John the baptizer, learning from him, following him, longing for the Messiah. And then he hears, behold, the Lamb of God. And, and he's blown away in such a way that he cannot shake this. John the baptizer, the guy who doesn't say anything because anyone else forced him to, the guy who only says what he sees bubbling up from Scripture, the one who comes with ferocious like intensity, who's an extraordinary dreamer driven by the vision of God's kingdom, says, there he is. He's a lamb. And John the evangelist, he can't shake it. That's why it's in his gospel account. That's why it's right here at the beginning. This is the testimony, a witness that supports indeed who Jesus is. John would have been like one of the greatest scholars, one of the greatest celebrities. Everybody would have said, oh, John is saying this? We got to take this seriously. And John the evangelist is saying, exactly. This guy is so close to who God is. And even he says, man, Listen, nobody can pay me off, but what I'm seeing, this is the Son of God. This is meant to bring unbelievable validation in this particular cultural context and time. And what John wants us to see when he declares that he's a lamb is that he wants us to know that Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus has come to take something away, to take something away. Now, there's a lot in life I want to hold on to. I want to hold on to some level of wit, um, even if it's cheesy humor. Uh, that seems to be where I'm uniquely gifted is cheese that doesn't make people laugh. Um, I also want to hold on to really sweet memories, like we do family movie nights every Friday night. This is something that's a tradition for us. And last Friday, we were watching the Batman Lego movie, you know, Oh, yeah, it was solid. And I have my daughter leaning on my shoulder here and one of my sons leaning on me here. And then just like enjoying the movie and we're together and we're snuggled up. I just want to remember those moments. I'm a weeper, guys, like all the time. Like I, every time a birthday comes around, I'm like, there goes my seven-year-old daughter, you know, in the past. Now she's eight forever until um, she's nine. Ah! <laughs> like I want to hold on to these things. There's things in life I just want to grab, and I just, I, I, you know, and I even hope, like, God, help me to remember these things. I mean, even into eternity, I just want to hold on. But there are certain things nobody wants to hold on to. I've never heard anybody's like, man, you know, I don't hold on to my mistakes. Mm-mm, you know? Remember that time? Oh, yeah, I lost my temper, and I yelled at my kids, and I saw the look of dread in their eyes. Oh, I can't wait to hold on to that. Oh, remember when I uh, lied to my boss, and I was terrified that he was going to find out? Oh, do you remember when I kind of funneled off just a little bit of money out of the business account to kind of cushion my life, but I'm sure hoping that the IRS never finds out? Oh, I want to hold on to that. 
Oh, remember that time I saw the disappointment in my spouse's eyes because I didn't follow through? Oh, love that. Holding on to it. Or you can even think of it a cultural framework. Oh, remember that time we enslaved a whole people group based upon the color of their skin and treated them like cattle that had generational implications? Oh, I want to hold on to that. No! We want somebody to do something with that stuff. We don't want to hold on to it anymore. We can't bury it because it's still there. We see this even with Cain and Abel. His blood cries out from the ground all the way from Genesis 4, and it continues to echo, right? You can't just bury it. You, you can't just sweep it under the rug either. And you can't just say, you know what? That helped me grow. Well, congratulations. What about the person you abused that helped you grow? How do they feel about your growth? Huh? Somebody's got to deal with that. Somebody's got to take it away. It's destructive. It's painful. It's terrible. It's toxic. And somebody's got to do something with it. The question is, what are we going to do? And no matter your worldview, there is something that every culture, no matter whether you believe in God or not, that you want to be taken away. And Jesus says, I've come. Actually, John the baptizer says over Jesus that he's come to take away sin. Sin. Sin is the very act and the result of the act of rejecting God and his good design in our world. Sin is the barrier between God and humanity. Sin is the barrier between you and me. Sin is the catalyst for our own selfishness that destroys ourselves, corrupts broader creation, that bleeds into everything. Sin. And to be clear here, I want you to look in your text. Sin is singular. So it's not isolating individual sins. That includes that, but it has a much broader ramification. The brokenness of the world sum total, which involves personal decisions, relational dynamics, global impact, national identity. There are systems, structures, the whole of the brokenness of all of creation right here. And Jesus has come to take that way bigger than just a small infraction between two people. Not that those are overlooked, but also simultaneously dealt with. And then, of course, all the heartache and the pain that comes out of these destructive decisions and the consequences of a broken structure, system, life, person, spiritual, cosmic reality. All of that. He's come to take it away. And you know, in the, one of the greatest parts of that is what comes at the end of this little verse. John 1, 29. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of just a few people. Of just the people who've really tried hard. Of just the people who are on the in crowd. Of just Israel. No, 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 no. Of the world. And to be clear, when you look across John's gospel, the way he uses cosmos or world in English, it's not like, oh, the world, <laughs> like this nice little cute thing. The world is, <laughs> thanks, Abby. The world, I don't know where that came from. The world is very much antagonistic to God. Every time the world pops up, it's something that's against his purposes. He came and it, the world knew him not. He came to his own and they did not know him. It's this, this antagonistic nature. You know what? He came for the world. The outcast, the foreigner, the immigrant, the ones who didn't belong to Israel. 
All of us, every aspect of us, every aspect of his created order that he designed all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2. If you just get to Genesis 3 and you see the breakdown between relationships rather than looking at Genesis 1 and 2 and that God has designed all of the world to be very good and when sin broke in, it broke all of the world that he designed, which is good, then we're not gonna understand the beauties of what he's doing when he's come to take away the sin of the world. It has cosmic massive ramifications that we can't even begin to fathom in its totality. He came to do that. And nobody, John, the baptizer, a Jewish man, speaking to a predominantly Jewish crowd, spoke something that was truly astounding. That what this Messiah, what this Christ, what this Lamb of God was to do was actually to take away the sin of the whole world. This is what he's been preparing for. This is what the prophets had spoken of. And if you ever get time to go read through Isaiah, they can't help but go cosmic when they start thinking of this servant, this one who is to suffer for the people and actually bring about redemption. They can't help but see it as actually renewing, not just heaven but and, and, but and earth, but all of it together. There's this glorious, powerful dynamic that happens in this one and through this one. And John, feeling the weight of all of his people and really the weight of the world led by the Spirit of God, which nobody could pay off. It's not like somebody's like, John, you got to say this. He can't help, driven by the vision of God's glory. is like, this is the one. And he can't help but see a lamb. <laughs> when he goes to announce to everybody who's listening, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm going to start preaching. Look out. And this is why John can't help but see a lamb. You see, from the very beginning, when sin broke into God's world and God came to Adam and Eve, this first human couple, and he covers them with animal skins, we begin to see how he's going to go about sin and brokenness and the very fragmentation of his world. It's in the loss of animal life, the severity, but then also the covering of nakedness that we begin to see his plan of redemption begin to unfold. You see, God is a just God. And we all know this, that somebody has to pay for injustice. Somebody has to pay for unrighteousness. That's what's just and what, that's what's right. Such that if you find that someone who has murdered someone and the, and the case seems fairly clear and even as you go through it, you find that people had you know, manipulated the jury or the judge is bribed and so a murderer gets off scot-free, you think to yourself, that is horrendous. And then the trauma of that death comes back on that family again, right? Injustice left unpunished is actually another injustice of itself, is it not? that continues to bring pain and heartache. We know this. But the astounding message across Scripture, which is God's voice to us and for us, is the reality that no one is perfectly innocent. And that every single one of us has a penalty to pay. And God, because he is good, because he is just, because he is righteous, the kind of God, frankly, we want, he can't just let it slide. 
but because he's also gracious and is merciful, he provides a way. And when you begin to follow the biblical storyline, going from Genesis all the way through, you see that animal sacrifice becomes an avenue to meet that, or at least as a holding pattern for what he is to do later. And one of the earliest places we see that is in Exodus chapter 12, when the nation of Israel is being oppressed and enslaved by Egypt and Pharaoh. When Moses comes to him, Moses is saying, let my people go. You are dehumanizing this whole race of people. And Pharaoh says, no, this is the economic backbone of our whole institution. I'm not going to let your people go. And then God says, all right, I'm going to show you what's going to happen when you don't free them. And one of the last signs, one of the last plagues that comes is he sends the angel of death to slay the firstborn of every beast and human there in Egypt. Part of this, all of these plagues were signs to combat the false gods of Egypt and to show that Israel's God was the one true God. But God said, I want to make a way for anyone who wants to trust me, Egyptian or Israelite alike, is you take a lamb and you slay that lamb and you put its blood on the doorposts. And as the angel of death comes through, when he sees the blood, he'll see that you've taken the severity of this circumstance seriously and that that lamb will have taken your place, taken the place of the firstborn son in that household. And everybody who's in that household where the blood of the lamb is at will be covered and the angel of death will move on. Right there we begin to see those pieces where the blood of a lamb is actually beginning to cover and care for the salvation of some. And this begins to echo out as you see the people of Israel when they flee that night because of God's work and freeing the injustice that was brought about by Egypt to now allow them to exit out. As they go now and travel in the tabernacle, they continue this act of sacrifice of animals to highlight the severity of their sin and also to trust in what God has provided as a way for a substitute to cover their sin. And then when they get into the promised land and they have the temple and they continue these sacrifices as a way of communicating the severity of their sin. And listen, this isn't like getting lamb chops. This is a lamb that you raised, one that was one of your best and you came in, and more often than not, you'd put your hand while they slay, they, they, they killed the lamb. It was a very experiential where you identified with the lamb. This wasn't, I just went to my grocery store and got lamb chops wrapped in plastic. I don't know where it came from, so no harm, no foul, right? Like this was, you were fully engaged in the process. You saw death in front of you, knowing that that's what you deserved, but that lamb took your place. I mean, powerful, visceral, when you felt the weight of your sin against God and community and yourself. And then there was one day, and this is fascinating to begin to imagine, but there was a day every year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where the priest would go into the most holy of places in the temple, and this lamb would be slain for the whole nation of Israel. There was a corporate solidarity. It wasn't just one lamb for one person but a lamb for a whole community and national sins and the personal accumulation of individual sins. All of that, one lamb slain for the sins of a whole community. This was done annually in the nation of Israel. And John, the baptizer, little fun fact, his dad was a priest. He grew up in Israel around the outskirts. 
He knew the practices happening in the temple on a daily basis. His dad would describe to him what would happen there in the Holy of Holies and and what would happen in the temple courts. He knew the ins and outs of the whole sacrificial system and what it communicated and how God had instituted it throughout history. He knew the writings of the prophets and all of this bubbling up in the collective consciousness of the nation of Israel. And now John is saying, knowing all of that, the rich history, there is a lamb that is before me who's going to now pay all of that. This isn't coming out of nowhere. This didn't start with John. But he is saying it's coming to a head and the one who is before him. And John's saying he's right here. (laughs) Can you believe it? He's right. He's right here. What we've been waiting for when we're slaughtered by Roman soldiers, when our women are abused, when our towns are overtaxed, when we feel the weight, when we abuse each other, all of that. He's here. And more than that, he's not just a lamb, but he's the lamb of God. This is where it's categorically different. Because before, throughout history, the people of God were to bring and provide a lamb, and that lamb was to cover for them. But here we see that God actually provides the lamb. He provides himself. And the author of Hebrews brilliantly begins to detail out the ramifications of the God-man being the lamb. Because now there's no longer a need for the priest to go in once a year and to slay a lamb for the whole of the nation. Because now Christ has gone to the cross on our behalf. And in his death, it's a once and for all. You don't have to keep doing it year after year. It's done. We sang about it earlier. It's done. And more than that, it wasn't just for the sins of one nation, but the sins of the world. For everyone who comes and finds solidarity or union with Christ, who looks at Christ and calls him their Lord, their Savior, and says, he did that for my sin. Here are my, for everyone who's done that, the worst that you can possibly imagine, the, the worst that you possibly have done, the worst that's been possibly done against you, all of that on him. It's done. The Lamb of God. It takes away the sin of the world. I don't know what it would have been like for John the moment he came to that realization. All of his life's work. The guy who comes before the guy when he finally sees the guy. But we do know what he said. And we know what popped out for him when he saw Jesus. So here's our invitation today. When we get to look at Jesus through John the Baptist's eyes, it's this, we need to behold the Lamb of God. Now, it's fascinating in the text. It doesn't say, you know, uh, neither the text nor John the Baptist nor what I'm saying is that we just need to see him, like understand him. The word here is behold. And it's a carryover from Hebrew that has this emphasis of like paying significant attention. You stop all the other distractions and you give all of your focus to this. Behold the Lamb of God. Like focus in whatever you're doing, everybody else, this is it. This is the most important thing. Behold the Lamb of God. There's a significant difference between beholding something and just glancing at something. You're beholding something, you're almost wholly noticing. You're giving all the faculties of your attention to that one thing. If you're just kind of looking at something, you might be aware of it, right? If you're beholding something, 
it begins to actually affect your affect, like it impacts your affections and the dynamics. You, you actually engages your feelings, not just your cerebr, your, your, your thoughts. When you're just glancing at something, you might be able to detail out just a couple of the broader facts about it, but it has no impact on you. Same way when you're looking at an auto stereogram. I know some of you are wondering, when are you going to get back to that? Here's when I'm going to get back to it. Once again, you can't just glance at it. If you just took a glance at it, you'd say, like, what's wrong with the screen? Oh, well, I'm going to keep walking. Instead, an auto stereogram, it requires you to slow down and to be fully engaged at the process in order to see what's actually there pop out. You have to. Now, some of you may be familiar with the story of Joshua Bell by now. It's an older story. It's almost become urban legend. Um, but back in January of 2007, uh, Joshua Bell was, is a world-renowned violinist. And January 11, 2007, he was playing in the Library of Congress in D.C., charging tickets that were over $100 a piece. Okay, so it started around $100 and went up. And it was packed. That was January 11th. Then on January 12th, he went to kind of the entrance of a subway, <laughs> put on normal clothes, and began to play. Same guy, same Stradivarius violin. I mean, very expensive. Uh, same extraordinary talent. And he began to play, but most, almost everybody walked right on by. Same extraordinary gifting. I mean, the, I'm sure the acoustics, frankly, of the entry of the subway was really good, too. You know, have you ever seen that? I mean, it's just, it sometimes just really reverberates, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. But most people walked right on by, and they actually have video footage of it, and you can see that most people are just like, da, 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 have no idea. They were completely aware that there was a violinist playing there as they were walking by, but very few beheld him. And I love the way that author Cheryl Strayed says, there is a sunrise and a sunset every day, and you can choose to be there for it. You can put yourself in the way of beauty. Or not. The question is, will we behold him? And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that the minutes that are between glancing and beholding, sometimes it just feels like minutes, are actually worlds apart. And I want to invite you to behold Jesus. Lean in. Give him your full attention. Continue to journey with us through the gospel account of John. And beholding Jesus, it's not just mental awareness. It's looking at who he is and what he's come to do for you, letting him read you as much as you're reading him. And if you really want to behold Jesus, it always, has to, it always requires a level of surrender. Always. No matter who you are, no matter how great you are by the particular cultural structures that we have that affirm that you're a great person, there's always avenues of surrender and growth. And it's a way of saying, I'm broken. I have sin. Thank you for dying for me. I'm yours. It's that it. It's that simple. It begins with prayer and it begins a journey. It doesn't end there, but it's as easy. The, the beginning is that simple. But if you are a follower of Jesus, this is what we're trying to do with E90. We're not trying to just help people glance Jesus. We're inviting them to behold him. And that's not a pointing to, hey, look at Jesus over there. It's an invitation to be with you in the beholding. Do you see what I'm saying? Because as a follower of Jesus, you never get over this. Evangelism at its core, sharing the good news of Jesus, 
is an invitation to walk with someone as you behold Jesus, not pointing them to someone away from Jesus. It's always an invitation to walk alongside. And the longer you walk with Jesus, the, longer, the more you realize you need more of him. <laughs> you want to behold him more. It's like in, in, in your morning quiet time or your evening quiet time, depending on your personality and kind of time frame. My wife's a night person. I'm a morning person. I got to do it in the morning. But then not only then, you begin to behold him in the ordinary things. Like, Jesus, you're the lamb who died for me. You're the lamb who died for my work. You're the lamb who died for this spreadsheet. You're the lamb, especially that spreadsheet. You know, you're you're the lamb who died for this relationship that's struggling. You're you're the lamb who died for this sales, you know, quota. I mean, all of this. I want to behold you in each of these aspects of my life. And here's the gift that comes along with that. What we have the beauty of that John the Baptist, he probably spoke better than he even realized as the Spirit of God was speaking through him. Because we actually see in Matthew, I was reading that with my kids this morning around the breakfast table. There's a point where John the Baptist is like, hey, Jesus, I'm in prison. And because uh, John, once again, he kind of messed with political affairs and he got himself in prison. Some people are like, well, if you're in prison, you're, you're not really following Jesus. John's like, hey, what, what do you want me to do? So he's in prison. <coughs> And uh, because he spoke out against uh, rulers and authorities that were immoral. Um, and, uh, and he's like, hey, Jesus. And he sends like his disciples. And he's like, hey, are you, are you the one? Or are we supposed to look for someone else? And so he even is wrestling through this. And Jesus just says, hey, tell John, I've healed the blind. And he starts going through real tangible ways in which the gospel, the kingdom of God has broken in. And he goes, So don't be discouraged. And blessed is anyone who's not like uh, put to shame by me and how I don't fit their categories. One of the great gifts that we have that John was wrestling through is that we get to be this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, this side of the Holy Spirit coming, this side of the church being cultivated and a deeper understanding of what that looks because of the revelation of scripture and those who have gone before us. John didn't have that. We have that. And here's what we get. When we understand that Jesus has taken all of the sin of the world upon himself, and when we resonate and we actually see and identify with him and we experience freedom, we not only have our sin removed, we also get his peace, his shalom, a wholeness that goes deep within us that says no matter what else the world says about me, my sin is taken care of. No matter what else guilt and shame wants to say to me, that's been taken care of. I'm his. And that kind of wholeness comes from the inside out and it has the impact on communities. That kind of wholeness breeds a communal shalom and even a global shalom. That's the the vision that John had, is that this kind of work that this lamb is going to do that he did on the cross through his resurrection and now through his people will have a global impact. Do you want that? I'm driven by John the Baptist, JB, as he's more affectionately known. Not Justin Bieber, but. So let me invite you. Behold the Lamb of God this week. If you haven't started, start now. Behold the Lamb of God. Don't rush it. You know, I got to get through this. I got to get to that. I got to go over. Don't rush it. It's going to take time. But whatever you do, don't stop either. Because we have something that is extraordinary, the God-man. 
died for us. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. Let's pray. God, we hear the testimony of John. We believe and yet help our unbelief. May we rest in who you are. May we see who actually jumps out at us. Not just what we want to see, but who you actually are. Because in who you actually are is the deepest of peace and the deepest of wholeness that has the radical power to change us by the power of the Spirit and so change our communities and, yes, even change the world. We trust in you. Guide us now in Jesus' name. Amen.